With CI Futures, you can access AI-powered market forecasting for as low as $20 a month. Get 94.7% market forecast accuracy for over 1,000 assets across commodities, currencies, equity indices, economics, and stocks. With weekly updates, one-month and three-month error rates, and top 10 and bottom correlations, you can rely on CI Futures to help you make informed decisions. Join a growing number of satisfied users who have already transformed the way they invest with CI Futures. Don't wait. Start forecasting with confidence today for as low as $20 a month. Hi, and welcome to The Week Ahead. I'm Tony Nash, and today we're joined by Tracy Schuchart, Anne-Marie Band, and Amelia Bordeaux. Um, this week, we've got a few key uh, themes. The first is oil equities. We're going to talk to Tracy about what's ahead for oil equities. Uh, we're going to talk to Amelia about diamonds and gold, uh, and we're going to talk to Anne-Marie about choppy markets. We've seen quite a lot about that this week. So guys, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time on a Friday. Um, Tracy, let's start off with oil. You know, we've seen um, we've seen crude prices falling over the past month, uh, and with it, we've seen share prices like Chevron, Exxon Mobil. So, where do you think crude prices are going? And I guess more interestingly, how will they affect uh, oil equities? Well, you know, I think right now what we're really seeing is we're kind of seeing the shift because people are expecting a rate pause into tech. And so we've seen a lot of volume going to tech, especially the, you know, the mega cap in the tech sector. We've seen a lot of money come out of value stocks and that obviously includes oil. So that's partially the problem. Also oil equities tend to follow oil prices. So oil prices have been very soft lately um, and those have proceeded to follow. Uh, the thing is, is that the fundamentals remain really, really strong in this market, right? And so it's more of a thing of there's just not a lot of participation in this market. And we've seen that, you know, over the last six months or so. So this isn't something new uh, necessarily. I think it's going to take a lot for people to really get into this market. You know, we've seen more Russian barrels on the market they never came off. They said they were going to cut 500,000 barrels. We haven't really seen that translated into exports. Exports still remain high. And then we also, you know, China is still lagging a little bit um, as far as their recovery is concerned, even though they are, they did just buy, you know, 15 million barrels a day of oil, which is an all time high for them. Um, but the markets really seem to be more worried about. Uh, the recovery in other sectors, you know, particularly uh, like housing and and building and, and things of that nature, and of course recession fears. But we see things Tracy, like travel doing really well, right? So, yeah. so how bad do they think housing is going to get? Um, as, as far as China's concerned, or as far as sure. the U.S. China or U.S. Well, you know, I think that the property sectors imploded right and right. so i don't know there's just not really a lot of interest there in fact there was an article that just came out this morning um on how 
uh, I think it was a Bloomberg article on how, you know, foreign investors are just really skittish to get back into the China market after, you know, the mm-hmm. housing implosion and because, you know, of the whole COVID issue for the last and the fact that foreign executives are now monitored and travel restricted and all that stuff. I mean, that's a huge risk. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I think that that is part of it as well. So I, I just, you just posted a piece this morning, I think, about uh, exports from uh, the U.S., I think six and a half million barrels a day or something like that. Yeah, the exports are but a whole time high. It's actually four and a half million barrels half, a day sorry. on average um, for the month of March which was, it's it, it, unfortunately, the EIA data lags two months when they come out with their monthlies. Um, but, you know, those are all-time highs. So, you know, that's excellent news for the U.S. I expect that to continue. I, there's, you know, no reason why it shouldn't. Um, and, you know, that's especially good news, obviously, for Texas, uh, because yes. the is the best, Burian's <laughs> the best basin right now. Yeah. Uh, with, you know, that looks like it can actually increase a little bit in production where the, all the other basins are falling in production. Okay. And then what about OPEC? What are, what are your expectations for OPEC? Do you think they're going to hold? Do you think they're going to cut supply even more? What, what's your outlook there? You know, I think we're going to have to see. It's just May is when they really started initiating these voluntary cuts, mm-hmm. right? So we're really going to have to give that a month or two, I think, to really see if that filters into the market and does that translate again to exports. We did see UAE say they were cutting back on exports 5% for the month of May. So, so far, so good. You know, I I know there's a lot of talk that, you know, well, it looks like Russia, you know, isn't keeping to their 500K. We don't really know because they stopped recording numbers. All we can do is trace it by uh, exports and those haven't come down. And so there was talk, you know, chatter that OPEC might, you know, just forget it and turn on the taps and whatever but i i am of the opinion that's definitely not going to happen because you know if you look at all these countries particularly saudi arabia they have a lot of big plans like they have neom and and you know they're trying to expand and make it a tourist hub um you know in uh, salmon has just a lot of plans and so they need the money and so i you know i don't think that they're knowing that I don't think they'll flood the market knowing that the demand's not there. Right. In other words, and risk crushing oil prices because they're not going to be able to sell more if the demand's not there. Right. So how does that translate to oil companies and oil stocks? Well, what's really interesting is I had a spaces this week and I was talking to um, uh, talking to uh, Jeremy McRae, who uh, is who is an institutional energy advisor for Raymond James, which is a big institutional uh, banking and investing conglomerate. But um, what he said, what he's seeing with his uh, institutional buyers is that he's seeing institutional buyers with large amounts of AUM, start to get really get interested in the industry again. And these are players that tend to hold for a very long time, mm-hmm. right? 
Whereas the hedge funds, the hedgies and the CTAs aren't holding for that long. They have a high turnover yearly of their stocks. And so we've seen a lot of volatility, even though we've it's been, you know, upwards, right? Since 2020, definitely stocks are well up their low equities, um, you know, but it's been a very bumpy ride. We've had 30% mm -hmm. drawdowns a lot, right? And so uh, he's, uh, as far as investors are concerned, that's a really promising uh, outlook. If, okay. You know, looking for maybe perhaps uh, more stable prices and not so much turnover in these stocks. Okay, great. Do you guys have any questions, Amory or Amelia? I, I have a couple of them, uh, okay. Tracy. In terms of... Um, these institutional investors, which I was going to talk to you about because that, that space is, was just incredible. Do you think that their decision to move into that sector again is a combination of them just being beaten down or the ESG noise just getting a little bit more quiet as we see a lot of people saying, well, I just don't know about these ESG things if we're going to be able to do what we need to do. What do you think the reason is that they're focusing there? You know, I think we've seen, you know, we've seen a big turn when we saw Vanguard in January uh, come out of the ESG banking sector group. I forgot what it's called off the top of my head, but that was a big turn of events. And then you're seeing a softer stance from even people like BlackRock. Right. And that were very adamant against it. And then you have Jamie Dimon, who is very pro oil and gas. And so I, I think what people are starting to realize, or at least these big banks, these you know, big institutional banks, um, are starting to realize that we're still going to need oil and gas for a very long time. And that it's proven to be highly profitable, where, you know, some of these renewables are very subsidized. Right. right? So, um, you know, and those stocks, if you look at solar and wind stocks, you know, they haven't been performing that well at all. And so there's an opportunity in the energy sector. It's not going away soon. And I think that you'll have, you know, individual investors, you know, start to hop on that train once they see these bigger banks um, kind of coming around to the sector more. Thank you. I wanted to ask about, um, this was kind of a lot of talk in the, the macro world, when OPEC or Russia, when they make these production cuts, and then is it usual that they don't always obey them? Or they, there was like this real debate in the macro community. Yeah. Well, it used to be that they didn't, right? Absolutely didn't. Um, and that was part of the big debacle in 2020. What happened is there was a falling out between Russia and Saudi Arabia, and they turned on the taps. Um, Russia turned on the taps, Saudi Arabia turned on the taps, and then COVID hit. So, you know, and then we got negative oil prices um, as a result. But I think since that kind of disaster, we've seen a complete turnaround in the cohesiveness of this group. And so, um, you know, people, I think, see, you know, think that it's the old OPEC plus when it's it's really not anymore. And they're really, you know, have said how dedicated they are to, um, to this group and to keeping production levels at, you know, what they say they're going to be. Right. 
Okay. And is part of that, Tracy, obviously it's internal group dynamics, but is part of that also, say, Europe and uh, say the U.S. kind of pushing back against one of their members very aggressively in Russia? Like, is has that driven those members closer together? Well, I, I think in some respects, yes. Um, I also think that you know, the U.S. is not a, really a threat to OPEC anymore as far as production is concerned. We're not at all time, you know, the all-time highs were in 2019. That was over 13 million barrels a day. We're not there. Mm. And we're probably not going to see those highs again. Um, and, you know, you're not seeing oil companies want to, you know, they're not gung-ho crazy, Turn, you know, let's just, you know, fly by the seat of our pants. We're going to just drill, baby, drill, right? They're more focused on uh, keeping shareholders and uh, share buybacks and paying down debt and um, paying dividends. And so uh, that mentality is kind of gone and almost an impossibility just because of, you know, the, a lot of the tier one wells are gone, <laughs> right? And they're just not drilling for them anymore. And so um, I think that OPEC feels a little bit more in control now as well. Okay, so you you said drill baby drill. So I'm going to ask about this. Trump had a town hall on CNN uh, this week, and one of his answers around inflation was drill baby drill. So how realistic or how feasible would that be as a policy if we had maybe not Trump, maybe Trump, somebody else who said, "Yep, we're going to clear all of the say regulatory and other issues. We're going to encourage uh, American drillers to drill." How feasible is it to get back up? above, say, 10 million barrels a day in the U.S.? Well, I, I don't think you're going to see, you know, I, I mean, we're, well, we're above 10 million barrels a day right now. We're at 12.3. Sorry, yeah. yeah <laughs> but right. um, but um, that said, you know, I think the government can only go so far, right? You right. can permit all you want. You can make things easier. Uh, you can open up acreage in Alaska. Um, you know, there's a lot of things the government can do. Um as far as, you know, things on federal lands, can't really yeah. do anything on private land. Um, so that's more kind of really the bulk of that's uh, Alaska and New Mexico. Um, but, you know, they can't really make companies. Drill oh, of course not. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they can make things easier for them. Absolutely. Right. Um, and they can provide incentives. Yeah. Uh, but again, you know, I don't think just because they do that necessarily means these oil companies are going to do that. I mean, we, you know, we've had we've had a, like a boom and a bust. OK, so I, I'm spending way too much on on oil. I'm sorry, ladies, but just how much of the pullback and drilling is uh, is regulatory and how much of it is interest rates and how much of it is other factors. I'm just curious from your, just in terms of broad strokes. Yeah. I mean, broad strokes really, you know, there are a lot of supply chain issues. Um, there still are some supply chain issues. We have a huge labor problem still because there just aren't enough people to yeah. work in the industry. Right. And so, um, and there's not people, you know, you're, we're not seeing that younger generation interested in oil anymore, right? Because they're of the ESG movement. So that's really huge. Those are problems outside of anything the government can do and that are hurdles for the industry right now. Okay, great. Thank you for that, Tracy. That was really, really good. I appreciate that. CI Futures is our subscription platform for global markets and economics. 
who forecast hundreds of assets across currencies, commodities, equity indices, and economics. We have new forecasts for currencies, commodities, and equity indices every Monday morning. Uh, we do new economics forecasts for 50 countries once a month. Within CI Futures, we show you our error rates. So every forecast, every month, we give you the one and three month error rates for our previous forecasts. Uh, we also show you the top correlations and allow you to download charts and data. You can find out more or get a demo on completeintel.com. Thank you. Um, Amelia, let's move on to diamonds and gold. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a really fascinating time for both right now. And I'll admit, I know nothing about diamonds. So could you talk us through the diamond market a little bit and help us understand what you're doing at Diamond Standard? Yes, for sure. I'm going to start opposite. Let me just show you our diamond standard commodity, and then I'll go into the diamond market Great. because I think people kind of need a reference of, of the commodity. So what happened at diamond standard is our founder, Cormac Kenny, um, and he comes from a background of computer science and building trading systems for hedge funds. Uh, so he's from the finance world. And uh, he made a, a diamond commodity. And how he did that is uh, he figured out about 94% of all investment grade diamonds, gym quality above ground. And, you know, diamonds are obviously different from one another in terms of color, cut, clarity, um, you know, and carrot, the size of it. So he found a way to group diamonds into these commodities that are geologically equivalent to each other. So let me show you, they're kind of held in resin. And I don't know if anyone can see this, but here it is. Here's a diamond commodity. This one is worth, the, the bar is worth about um, 51 thousand dollars today and this is a coin and that's fifty one hundred dollars today so a coin to another coin is fungible meaning it's geologically equivalent so they're not the same as each other but they're uh as i said the geological equivalents and so that's what makes them um good for delivery for um the CME for COMAX. So they've already been rated as good for delivery. Then on the back, they're on the blockchain. So that's the blockchain token. And what that allows a person who holds them to do is if you would normally, if you're in the United States, say if you wanted to hold the physical, you store it at Vault and Brinks. Um, and then if you wanted to trade it, we have a spot market. You would just trade the tokens. So you don't have to physically move the actual commodity. So that was the breakthrough that diamond standard, and that's why it's called diamond standard. They created a standard for diamonds that is fungible and now able to trade. And as we want to, we want to move into um, financializing diamonds. So, you know, we have a spot market, we're going to have futures and options and eventually an ETF. Similar to uh, when gold, we think of ourselves like in the precious metals category when uh, the GLD was launched back in 2004 and kind of that position build um, that took place into it and, and subsequently. But let me just kind of talk to you quick about the diamond market because it's really a fascinating market. I mean, diamonds are a $1.2 trillion natural resource. Um, and they're underallocated financially compared in investment worlds compared to other precious metals. So investors hold about 2% of diamonds and they hold anywhere from 15 to like over 30% in the case of gold of other precious metals. So this is definitely um, you know, a commodity that hasn't been financialized yet. And we get this question a lot because there's, um, you know, the rise of lab grown diamonds. So I wanted to kind of address that in two ways. Natural diamonds are, are rare. So they're um, from a supply standpoint. So most mining analysts believe that um, diamond production peaked back in 2005 at 100 and 
77 million carats. So by comparison, last year in 2022, 115 million carats were mined. So that's 35% lower. Um, and that's expected to hold steady for a couple of years and then dip again around 2025, 20, 2026, because these major mines that have been operating some for 70, 50, 40 years are, you know, are running out, they're coming offline. And so there is a real supply constraint. There hasn't been a new mine, a geolo a, you know, a large find, one that could operate for, say, over 20 years. There hasn't been a, a mine in decades that that's been found. Um, Petra Diamonds, which is a major diamond mining company, has said that when they explore, less than 1% um, of things that they find are viable. So there isn't a lot of hope, I guess, on the horizon that, you know, some big geological discovery is going to be made in terms of supply. And so you do have that dwindling of the natural diamond. And then on the other side, you kind of have, I wanted to address the lab-grown, you have this big rise, especially in China and India, these manufacturers of of the lab-grown diamonds and, you know, these new companies are popping up all the time. So that lab-grown um, diamonds are really expanding. It's interesting because some are really beautiful. You know, when you look mm -hmm. at them, you can't necessarily tell that um, they're not a natural diamond. It's just that when you put them under, you know, microscopes and you have the graders, because GIA and IGI, the graders, they will grade a lab-grown and they will tell you it's lab-grown. It's, it's pretty much immediately apparent because, you know, natural diamonds are formed over thousands of years um, and lab grounds are, are made very quickly. So their molecular structure, um, when you look at that, is, is quite different. How, how, like, how do you tell the difference? Are lab grown like almost too perfect or something like that? I mean, is it? I mean, again, I'm not a diamond expert. I don't know anything about it, but I'm just curious when they look at it under a microscope, what are the tells? Do you know? It's really the molecular structure of it. Yeah, the refraction is also yeah. significantly different between the natural and the, this is very interesting that you're talking yeah. about these because I have a, have I, I have all kinds of thoughts around the diamond industry. So I'm, I'm interested to. Come on, tell us, Emery. What, what, what are they? Well, so how would you, um, how would you combat the, um, the group that says still the De Beers hold the uh, foothold really for diamond distribution in the world still, and a great much of diamond supply is still held by De Beers, right? They keep it on the ground in great big vaults, yada, yada, yada. And so a lot of folks have posited over the years that um, De Beers is actually in charge of that mass marketing event that uh, propagates the notion of the diamond industry being uh, a good one to be in. And of course, for many years in, I think it's, uh, is it Amsterdam where they Literally, Antwerp. these Antwerp. There Antwerp. we go. The it's other A one. Yeah, That's yeah they actually have done business for years and years with a handshake. If you're not completely honest with everything, they'll snuff you out and kick you out. So it really is one of the rare industries where uh, contracts aren't used. They feel like if you have to sign a contract, then and your word is not your bond, then you don't belong in our business. And so. Um, 
that community has been really closed uh, because they keep all those very highest quality in uh, very low distribution environments. And so is there anything, if someone like me that says, oh, you know, the diamond ETF industry has been trying to gain traction for quite a bit of time. And I love the fact that you guys have tokenized it and it's on the blockchain. So I assume it's contract. It's got a contract thing on there on the back end of that blockchain. Business. Um, yeah. Also, the um, the if you can see dot, you can kind of see purple dots. Those purple dots are yeah. all the certificates that go with yeah. individual oh, so do you, you can look it up, and also you can find this. Uh, meaning, when it's activated, um, if you want to know, it's like sitting in the vault and what position in the vault is in. This will tell you. Yeah. So I know that's kind of a probing question, since there seems to be an organization at a couple of organizations at the very top of the heap that have always tried to keep. Uh, supply constricted, does it ever concern you that they might one day say, hey, listen, I we're, we're going to get let some of these out because of XYZ? I don't think they're going to because there's no benefit to them. But have you had people ask those questions? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up um, De Beers. So in general, the, the mining supply is def the supply of natural diamonds is definitely on a, a downtrend. Um, the largest supplier, which is almost equal to De Beers and slightly, depends on what year you look at it, slightly larger than De Beers in the market is of course Al Rosa, the Russian um, partially state-owned diamond company. And so they mine um, about 40% of the world's diamonds and De Beers is just underneath at um, maybe 35%. So um, it's very interesting because um, as we know, the G7 meeting is coming up in Japan next week. So there's been a lot of talk about further sanctions on El Rosa. The, the problem, so that would further shrink the supply. So when you mentioned De Beers controls the market, well, El Rosa actually mines as much or more than um, De Beers. So there is a more diversified diamond mining industry than there was say you know 50 to 70 years, yeah yeah years mm -hmm. ago for sure yeah. and so that's another supply constraint that's likely going to hit the market it's there've been various sanctions but russian diamonds in theory can get through because of the substantial transformation um language in you know imports basically so if they were mined in russia somehow a rough mining then the rough diamonds are sold to one of the polishing centers antwerp oh. india india is a huge polish yeah yeah most of the, you mentioned antwerp but most of the diamonds are polished out of india now and yeah. so um you know that would a substantial transformation can take place it's really difficult to trace the provenance of a stone meaning yeah rough where the the mine is mined and the country it's mined in. That's, that's just been a problem for ages with the diamond mining industry. Maybe now with technology and blockchain, they can solve it. But there'll probably be some sort of announcement um, in what, a week to 10 days time uh, from the G7 about further sanctions um, somehow on these Russian diamonds. Um, they've definitely been talking to the diamond dealers, but it's a problem where it's just very difficult to solve how they would implement um, the sanction. There are some jewel, major jewelry companies that have self-sanctioned, meaning um, they have told their suppliers, which are the middle, the middlemen, the middle people, the, the polishers and cutters, that um, they've made them sign legal agreements that they won't take um, 
you know, Russian diamonds that they oh. must be separated. <laughs> so when you, that's a little bit more of addressing um, as well, your concern or the, the point you brought up, which is a good one about things being done on a handshake. I don't really think that that's the case anymore. I mean, mm -hmm. there's been such, you know, Tracy kind of mentioned it as well with, I think the younger generation and more concerned about ESG or yeah. um, things like that. They've really demanded, um, you know, where this diamond comes from, yeah. you know, making sure it's not um, a conflict diamond, yeah. which is Kimberly processes for the Kimberly process works with the U.S. Right. And they've been doing that since 2003. But um, I think that there's more paper, more, you know, legal agreements in place that say Russia and, the, and an Indian supplier needs to be those diamonds need to be separated. Um, and, you know, there'll be a more diamonds going to Western states, which will be supply constrained. And those Russian diamonds most likely will go to like China and the Middle East. So it's, um, it's interesting. I think that the diamond industry in one way is very traditional and in another way, it's really evolved, I think, because the consumers have have demanded that it evolve. And especially now with the advent, you know, two of lab grown diamonds and, you know, they need to be graded and separated as well. And that's obviously very important. And IGI and GIA work to yeah, do that. Huge. Mm -hmm. Diamond graders. And I just wanted to get to, back to the point originally about because we get to ask this question so much about our lab grown diamonds a threat. I think, you know, we think especially if we're continuing to buy natural diamonds into yeah. you know, physically backed ETFs and for financial purposes, those will be natural diamonds. And we will, we have a diamond exchange actually that we made that one of the first electronic diamond exchanges for price transparency, we have 185 um, manufacturers on it. Those are the cutters and polishers who sell diamonds to us. So all that pricing is transparent. And um you know, just like anything else, we bid low and we bid until somebody yeah. accepts mm -hmm. it. Uh, we buy about 10,000 diamonds a week to separate into groups for our, our commodity. But I eventually the diamond industry will need the lab grown diamonds, right? <laughs> because what are Zales, what are Jared going to do when the natural diamonds become so, you know, exclusive or obsolete that it's really Cartier using them only or graph that yeah. can Mm -hmm. And then yeah. kind of the mall jewelry stores will all convert most likely to, yeah. to lab grown diamonds so that they continue to, to have jewelry. So that's kind of how, you know, we see it progressing. That's interesting. I didn't think about the mall jewelers or whatever converting to lab grown diamonds, but that. Yeah. Or tiny cool. ones like in watches when you just have right. like, diamond, you know, yeah. tiny accent stones as opposed to a, a yeah. Fantastic. Now, this is really great. I. Like I said, I know nothing about diamonds aside from Lil Uzi's diamond in his forehead. So, you know, it's a little, um, <laughs> little yeah. mysterious. I just wanted to make a point, too. It's kind of interesting because obviously right now diamonds haven't been financialized. We're in the process of doing that. So the majority, like 90, over 90 percent of above ground diamonds are used for gemstones. So that's personal, you know, consumption spending. And um, obviously, you know, there's varying degrees of people calling for recession in the U.S. So that will slow because the U.S. is diamonds largest market where over 50 percent of the world's consumer diamonds come to the United States. The second largest market is, is in China. But we just had Q1 results for um, luxury goods houses, LVMH and Richemont. Cartier and Van Cleef and LVMH who owns Tiffany's and Bulgari's and they had extraordinary sales one and it was driven of course by the reopening um in China from the pandemic restrictions yep. but that reopening in China you know we can't expect the the big lift from reopening all year but that kind of acts as a 
a tailwind. So when it's interesting when people talk about slowdown in consumer spending, at least for diamonds, it's very high end has just no stopping it right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. So let's move on to gold because I know it's super polarizing and with worries about the dollar and the banking crisis and all that stuff, it's really pushed up the price of gold over the past month. So I'm going to make some enemies here, but our complete intelligence forecast is going to say that gold will likely fall five to 6% off highs over the next month or so. Um, we also saw Palantir, who has nothing to do with gold, take $50 million yeah. of gold off of their balance sheet this month. So is, is that an indicator of things to come? Are people trying to kind of dump some of their gold at these high prices because they're seeing some de-risking around, say, the dollar, which we've seen rise over the past couple of days? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think people are taking profit on gold, you know, when it got to the high, like 2050, whatever, last week. And then, you know, it's it's still above that psychologically important level of 2000. I think like it's just been chopping around with, I think, mostly the banking, the regional banking headlines, like how right. that's going. And I had a chart um, of the regional banking index versus gold, and they've been following each other pretty closely, you know, mm -hmm. since the turmoil back in early March. But I think what we have to consider here is just... Um, you know, the World Gold Council is obviously all over this. It's the central bank buying. So there's been a, a, a large, a strong buy by the central banks of, of China, uh, Monetary Authority, Singapore, and Turkey all through Q1. They've led that central bank buying. And I think a lot of the answer to the question you asked depends on will these central banks continue to buy throughout the year, because that's definitely providing like a base. Uh, for so when a central bank buys gold, to me, I could be wrong. So tell me if I'm wrong. To me, that doesn't necessarily say they have a huge amount of faith in their underlying fiat currency. That tells me they're buying gold to, to imply strength into their fiat currency. Is that, am I wrong there? Yeah, I mean, the, the World Bank, I mean, the World Gold Council has done a lot of research and reports on this. They are claiming it's for diversification purposes and that these countries are worried, you know, about, about inflation for their fiat currency. Right. So they're yeah. kind of arming themselves um, against an, against inflation. They're arming themselves against, you know, a possible dip in the value of their, their other reserves. Right. And so when I see people on certain social media platforms claim that China buying gold means we're all going to be spending CNY in 10 years, it I take the opposite side and it tells me that they're actually worried about the value of CNY and need to spend right. some dollar reserves to get gold while they can do it. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. I mean, and plus the IMF, I mean, there's been this big de-dollarization debate, which is, you really, I, I formerly worked before uh, Diamond Standard X Anti-Data, who really followed capital flows. And if you you look out um, on Twitter, especially you follow like Brad Sester from, um, I think, yeah, he's, he's an, an expert on this. He tweets a lot about it. It's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, like reserves are... China yuan were like 2.4% and then right. for last year and then the dollar was still like well over 50% and euro was 20%. So right. you're like, they really, they've moved up over the decade, but not by much. I mean, they only have like what are two and a half percent of global reserves. So. Right. And when we see people like Argentina saying they're going to pay for all their imports in CNY, does, and again, what that tells me is they're out of dollars, so they need They're out of dollars, money. yeah. Brad made that point as well on Twitter. He had some figures behind it, but yeah, they're out of dollars. Yeah, they need some other fund ticket to pay for their imports, right? That's basically what it is. It could be anything, but CNY is, 
it's yeah. it's got the most yeah. behind it right now in terms of uh, enthusiasm, I guess, right? Right, so, right. And they and import then, a lot from China. Yes, exactly. I mean, and what would you rather have on your balance sheet, like Indian rupees or China yuan? You know, because you want it, you can buy manufactured goods from China with the currency, at least. Russia and India in the diamond industry were trying to figure out a payment system for diamonds between them. But the talks, they announced like a couple of weeks ago, the talks just fell flat because yep. I think, in you know, Russia didn't want all these Indian rupees like on their balance sheet, basically. Right, exactly. And all of that is just telegraphing people's confidence in the central bank, right? And I've said right. this several times, I don't know of many people who research the credibility of the PBOC in China but I would encourage everybody to research the PBOC. How do they make their policy decisions? How do they decide on the levels of their interest rates? These sorts of things. If you can find the research, you'll be really shocked at what you find. So again, I'd encourage everybody to do that. So yeah. Amelia, thank you for that. I really, yeah. I really appreciate that. So Anne-Marie, let's talk about choppy markets, okay? So you're a pretty brilliant market tactician, and we've seen chop in the last, really a lot in the last month on the S&P. We've got a, a chart on screen. So what are you looking at right now to make your way through the chop? Like, how, you know, is it daily? Is it hourly? And, and, and what are you looking at to understand what the chop means? So I like to look at the monthly charts and what that ends up telling me mostly is that we've been caught in a fairly big range. And every time we've tried to break out above it, when everybody goes, hey, it's going to be a great long, everybody needs to buy, really, even on a day like today, it ends up not happening. And so right. I think we're in, I, I like to look at the ES because I, I trade it every day. And so, um, the ES futures, really, if we look at a composite monthly chart, we can see that we're caught in a slog trying to break out. Yep. And so then my question becomes, all right, well, if we're trying to break out and we can't, where do I find the pervasive bid? And that really right. is what we are seeing. We're seeing a pervasive bid. No matter how deep we go, somebody comes in and holds the floor. And so we can literally look at the last five or six months and see that we've got higher lows coming into the space. But if you're holding on for a breakout, it's just not the best thing to do. So that makes me look at all trading very tactically right now. Yeah. And I suspect there's some kind of catalyst that's happening here. And to me, because the macro voices are so negative and so loud. I mean, the bullhorns they have yep. in the Twitter sphere, it's incredible. Right. And so what I believe is happening is that a lot of people are shorting. And then as it comes into support, they have to buy to cover and mm. it turns the market right around. And then people who are thinking about the breakout they buy the breakout, they get slammed because there are more people, as soon as they get stopped out of their short, they're looking for the next high to put on another short. Okay. And so 
Go ahead. So, so how long does this last? And and what are those things? You say you're looking for some signs of a breakout. What are those things aside from a Fed saying, hey, we're going to go completely dovish, right? But, you know, what are some of those things that you're looking at? So to be a contrarian, mm -hmm. if the Fed were to say, hey, we're going completely dovish, I'm looking for my blanket to hide under the bed. Yep. Because that's something, right? And right. so I would suspect that if anything like that happens, it probably will turn the market on its heels and will get even the worse effect. So because I don't have a good handle on how macro voices come together and make decisions, right? So somebody like Felix Zuloff comes out and he says, well, I think da-da-da-da-da. For me, being able to pull all those strings together and make a bow it's almost impossible because of our known unknowns and because of our unknown unknowns. Yep. We sit in such diametrically op opposed environments with nothing that's gravitating us into any kind of central sensibilities. To me, it seems like we're just going to pull until the rubber band breaks. Mm -hmm. And that whatever that rubber band is, maybe it's war, maybe it's, you know, like Dr. Pippa was talking about these, you know, Chinese and Russian guys are blowing their satellites up and creating these huge debris fields so that our ability to have satellite information is really could be compacted because they just want to stop flow, right? Just before mm -hmm. the Ukraine war, they went down and tried to cut those internet cables that were everything. And so we really are, I mean, think about this. If we did not have great technologies that brought us together, we the four of us could not be sitting here today. Right. And so what I expect is that we slosh around and then we get up one morning and we're limit down on everything because of some sort of whatever. And then the market tries to capture that bid. And then we realize that we can't break out again. And mm -hmm. then something starts to unwind more dramatically. But I think there's sort of a, what is that? Is it William Faulkner that said, how do you go broke slowly and then all at once? Oh, that was the guy who ran with the bulls. Um, yeah. But anyways, you know, that my thought is what we have to see is some dramatic systemic jolt that makes things fade sharply. And then people go in, oh, here's my opportunity to buy. And right. they buy yeah. and we can't recapture those levels. And that gives us the unwind. And now because I have this amazing faith in the human spirit there's also the thought that hey listen we'll just adapt divide and conquer in a brand new space and mm -hmm. so we're gonna see that fourth turning as it were sure. right cool. where we we have a lot of things break and then ashes come out and there's a new phoenix on the horizon and so you know to punt i'm gonna say I have no idea, but what I do know is as it sits, I must trade tactically. 
I must have my eyes completely focused on risk. And within that environment, although it puts me in a, a space where there are a lot of places I could make a ton of money, but I don't because I'm not leveraged as strongly as I could be, I'm still seeing a lot of people looking at the fire doors going, okay, do I have a clear exit just in case anything happens? So I'm not decimated for the next time. It's a great buying opportunity. Yeah. So it tells me you say you have no idea, but you're kind of expecting for us to wake up one day to a big negative surprise and everything limit down. Is that? Um, I would say that the way things uh, reset is usually by a floor giving way. I don't think things reset with a continual drive to the north because then there's no real desire to reset. Why should I reset if things are completely continuing upward? And so that's where I think we are right now. I think that even though there are all these people that are short um, and all the volumes within the market continue to diminish because Mm money is going to places that it's being treated better and so with less risk. And so that grind up on that thinning volume is just a classic, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a classic pattern of that rising wedge under diminished volume. It's going to have an air pocket that eventually fills in. Interesting. Okay. So we keep seeing, say, super core rise gradually. We keep seeing wages go up. Um, uh, and that may, you know, that continues to pressure the Fed. We, you know, we saw a unanimous vote in the Fed this month, right? And so that, you know, I think. I hear a lot of people who want to be more dovish, but it, it's really hard. It'd be really hard for the pivot to, or the the Fed to go from a unanimous uh, rise towards some sort of pivot. Um, they could potentially go into a pause if uh, we saw some dramatic numbers. But I'm not. I'm just not seeing dramatic numbers. We're seeing some positive numbers, some negative numbers. If you look at say. Consumer expectations, they're still expecting higher inflation, these sorts of things, right? But, you know, is there, do you have any idea of what that dramatic number could be for us to all wake up and go, oh my gosh, this is, Um, you know, this is bad? You know, I don't, I don't think it's going to come from the central banks per se. We could have a sovereign crisis that makes something go. Yeah, oh yeah, yep. And so that is certainly key, particularly as interest rates rise and everybody has U.S. debt and they need to pay back. It's going to take more of their dollars than ours and so on and so forth. Okay. So it, it could be I don't think it comes from the Fed. I don't think it comes from the central banks in, in essence. I think okay. I think we see something physically important to us happen. I, I okay. don't know that it's, um, I think it might be caused by what's going on, but again, you know, my crystal ball is very dusty yep. right here. So okay, so so if we saw a couple countries pull a Sri Lanka, right, where everything falls apart, the government loses credibility, they have to refinance everything, let's say a Turkey or Brazil or something like that, 
we'd probably see some dominoes fall there. And that could be the type of event. It's almost the regional banking crisis crisis at a sovereign level. Yes. So that's at a, a possibility. Level. Yes. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to keep an eye out for that. So, um, okay, guys, given, you know, where we are in this kind of choppy land, what are you guys expecting? Tracy, let's start with you. You know, when you look at energy and commodities markets, what are you expecting in the next couple of weeks? Are you expecting any change of direction? Do we see some seasonal, say, uplift in crude prices, something like that? I think that we'll probably just be kind of chopping around in this area. Um, OPEC is going to have their regularly scheduled meeting. They used to have monthly meetings, but their actual regularly scheduled meeting in June, first mm -hmm. week of June. And so I think markets are kind of waiting on that, to be honest. I don't, you know, unless we see some huge catalyst to either, you know, to, to move this in either direction, uh, you know, quickly or yeah. you know fast i think we're just in the i think we're in the chop, this chop zone and people are really and traders are really waiting to see what they say at this meeting okay so we're just looking for direction generally do all you guys agree amelia do you see anything different or do you have a kind of a strong strong opinion either way I think I agree with, um, you know, Tracy, I think we're just going to be chopping around. I think, you know, markets need a catalyst speaking yep. to um, the other points we made here. But I mean, I, I, I'm a macro person, right? So I'm kind of like a doomsday prepper by nature. So <laughs> with all of these, you know, risks out there, whether they're geopolitical or a possible sovereign crisis or uh, the U.S. hitting a death ceiling or I don't know, inflation like really turns around and goes down quickly. I, I'm not sure. But I feel like you do need to hedge. I feel like, you know, precious metals, you do need a safe haven component um, to your portfolio, even like more regional banking banks fail here in the U.S. So um, I think the outlook is really unclear. And I just think, as you guys know, really smart people, whether from hedge funds, banks, central banks, like analysts, Bentwit, you see it everywhere. Smart and respectable people are really disagreeing with each other's yes. outlook yep. and the timing of events. And so that just tells me as a macro trader, use that uncertainty as an opportunity, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and try to, you know, put your hedges on and, and be ready for that next break. Great. Okay. Guys, thank you so much. This has been really amazing. I really appreciate your time today. And thanks so much. Have a great weekend and have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much. <laughs>